Well, good to be with you guys again this morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at River City. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you again. Uh, as we've mentioned a number of times, we've been going through a study in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is primarily found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5 and 7. There's a kind of a, another a version or another account also found in the Gospel of Luke as well. Um, and uh, so we're kind of in the middle of that. We're uh, in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember last week, um, Ryan preached out of uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And in those verses, Jesus outlined, um, Jesus outlined the idea that there's two places that we can store up our treasure. And he said, you can either store up your treasure on earth or you can store it up in heaven. And at the root of how we decide where we store up our treasure is the question of what we value the most. What matters the most to us? That's the question that determines where we end up storing up our treasure. And at the end of Ryan's sermon last week, he asked the question, if we really believe, if we really think that money isn't worth valuing the most, that it doesn't actually satisfy, that it doesn't really give the life that we think that it will, if, if, if we understand that, if we know that, why do we still live like it's the thing that we should value the most? Why do we still pursue it in that kind of a way? Why are we still consumed by it so often? And I think uh, really helpfully Ryan articulated last week, the reason that we do that is because we don't believe. We don't believe that God is good. We don't believe that he really satisfies. We don't really believe that he'll provide. We don't really believe that his kingdom and his ways are best. We, we just don't believe. And this week, as we study some of the most well-known verses in Jesus' whole sermon, we're going to see Jesus lay out the same truth as it applies to worry and anxiety. You see, unbelief in God is the root of our worry and anxiety. And there's only one cure for unbelief. It's the gospel. See, anxiety and worry are real problems in our world. And if you're honest with yourself, they're probably real problems in your own life. And they affect people in real, actual kinds of ways. Billions, literally B, billions, billions with a B, dollars are spent every year on drugs and on remedies and on things to fix our anxiety and to fix our worry. But what happens when we look to drugs and remedies and other things, anything other than the gospel to be the cure for the anxiety that, that like compels and the anxiety that rules our hearts so often is that we just end up treating the symptoms without actually addressing the disease. We just mow over the weeds. And trust me, my lawn proves when you just mow over the weeds, they just keep coming back. And they don't just keep coming back, they bring their friends and when we try to mow over anxiety, it brings its friends of fear and bitterness and worry. It brings uh, often anger and frustration. And if we just keep mowing over the weeds of anxiety and worry in our hearts, we will never actually address the root, which is unbelief in the gospel. See, this morning, Jesus is going to both diagnose the cause of our worry, and he's going to prescribe the cure we really desperately need. I hope what you see as we study this passage this morning is that believing that God is our loving Father, it frees us from worry, and it enables us to prioritize a pursuit of his kingdom. Believing that God is our loving Father frees us from worry, and it enables a prioritized pursuit of his 
kingdom. So let's read our passage this morning, and then we'll pray and continue to dive into God's word. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God, thanks for your word. Thanks that it's not just an old ancient book, but it's like incredibly timely and timeless. God, we, we need to hear your words this morning about worry and anxiety, and we need the truths about who you are and all that you've done to invade our hearts and to replace our doubt and our unbelief. So God, we just ask humbly that you give us eyes to see your word rightly this morning. You give us hearts that can actually hear and respond to the truth that is there. Pray that you would, in our time this morning, as we sit under your word, that you would begin the work of freeing us from worry. God, we want to live for you and for your kingdom and for your purposes, but we have no shot of doing that without you. And so as we come to your word, as I seek to proclaim the truth that's there, God, I just pray that you'd fill me with your spirit so I don't have anything valuable to offer this morning. God, I pray that you'd speak through me, that you'd make much of yourself and much of the gospel, and that you'd that would be good for us, and it would result in your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to ask three questions as we dive into our passage. Question number one, why do we worry? What's the cause? What's the root? What's the source of worry and anxiety in our lives? Secondly, how do we stop worrying? And lastly, why is it so important? Why does Jesus think it is so important that we actually address worry, and anxiety in our lives. So question one, why do we worry? Verse 25 begins with a command for us not to worry. In fact, Jesus, Jesus repeats that command three times in the passage. He says, do not worry. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about or plan ahead although I would think it would be wonderful if we didn't have to think ahead or plan. Um, but it's not prohibiting planning ahead or thinking ahead. It's about being anxious. John Stott really helpfully writes, he says, what Jesus forbids is neither thought nor forethought, but anxious thought. Prudent provision for the future is right, but wearing and corroding self-torming anxiety is wrong. Although there are innumerable things we can worry about, Jesus highlights uh, two things, really one thing specifically, 
And he says that we shouldn't worry about our physical needs. He says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you'll drink or what you will wear. You don't need to worry about that. And he goes on to give us a few reasons why we shouldn't worry. Verse 26, if God feeds the birds, don't you think that he'll feed you? Verse 30, if God clothes the grass with beautiful flowers, don't you think that he will clothe you? Jesus is asking the same rhetorical question in both of these examples. Don't you understand how valuable you are to God? Don't you understand how how much you are worth to him? Don't you see how good and how lavishly generous God is even to the birds and to the grass? How much more good and how much more generous would he be to you? You're his kids. See, Jesus is saying that we don't have to worry because God will take care of us. You don't need to store up treasure on earth. Just like the birds do not need to store up food in barns. Jesus says, because God is your good father. He knows what you need. He loves you. He knows what you need. To these things in verse 27, he adds, what worry does good do anyways? Can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour of your life, worrying is pointless. Jesus is saying, there's no value in it. It, it's, It's pointless for us to worry. And more than it being pointless, it does us no good. In fact, it does us harm. I think what's really important um, as we study our passage this morning, is to know what what reasons Jesus does not give about uh, why we don't need to worry. And I think chiefly, the main reason he does not give about why we don't need to worry is that we won't ever have trouble. One commentator writes, Christ commands us not to be anxious, but does not promise that we'll be immune from misfortune. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus again here speaking about the birds, he says, not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. But sparrows do fall to the ground and they do get killed. And Jesus' promise was not that they would never fall, but that it would not happen with God knowing it. In John John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is right before uh, he's about to go to the cross. And he says this, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. For in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. See, the cure for anxiety is not a lack of trouble, but the cure does enable peace in the midst of trouble. And although Jesus has outlined a number of reasons why we shouldn't worry, why it doesn't make any sense, why it's just like foolishness that we should worry, he goes on in verse 32 to actually tell us the reason we still do it, the real reason we still worry. At the end of verse 30, he says, Oh, you of little faith. Man, those four words sting, don't they? <laughs> when you hear that, they, they like, I don't know about you, but they cut to my heart because they're true. <laughs> They're true not just in general, but they're true of me. In his book, Gospel Fluency, Jeff Vanderselt writes the following. He says, we all still have places in our lives where we don't believe God. There are spaces where we don't trust his word. We don't believe what he's accomplished in Jesus Christ is enough to deal with our past or what we're facing in this moment or in the next. We don't believe his word is true or his work is sufficient. We don't believe we are all unbelievers. 
What he's not saying is that nobody's a Christian and that everybody is just endlessly searching. But he's saying that as followers of Jesus, we all have places in our hearts where we still need to grow in the gospel. Just like Andy and Steph were talking about this morning. So what is Jesus saying that we don't believe about God that's causing our worry? What is he saying that we don't believe about God that's causing our worry? Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus refers to God as a good father twice. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in just three chapters, Jesus refers to God as Father more than 15 times. It is one of the major themes of the Sermon on the Mount. It dominates all of the other names for God that are referred to in, in all of Jesus' sermon. See, relating to God as a good Father is central to life in the kingdom. It's central to life in the gospel. And what Jesus is saying is that the problem is is we don't actually believe that God is a good and loving Father. That's the root of our worry. That's the root of our anxiety. We don't actually believe that God is a good Father and that he's our good Father. Instead, we see him as a stranger or a boss, and because we don't believe he's a good Father, we don't believe he'll actually provide for our needs. A few weeks ago, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and we said that who we pray to changes what we pray for. It's the basis upon which we interact with someone that changes how we relate to them. The only way we're ever going to pray like Jesus did and like he called us to is if we see God as a good Father. Our world, there is so much baggage with the word Father and what that means. And some of you have uh, grew up with dads that were absent or were better off if they were. They weren't loving or generous, and they definitely weren't good. And when you hear that God is your father, that's not good news to you. It is hard to hear. It brings up pain. It brings up hurt, and you wrestle with that. I just like want you to hear this morning, and if that's your experience, like God wants to meet you in that. In fact, like God doesn't just sit idly by like just wishing something was better. But God sent his son so that you might know what a good father is really like. Some of you guys had amazing dads. Some of your dads were on the spectrum. Maybe they loved you well and they deeply cared for you. They weren't perfect. But when the Bible says that God is your father, it's good news to you. It feels good. It feels safe. This is one of my deepest desires for my kids. One of the I think that one of the single most important things I can do when my kids are little to teach them about God isn't to train them in theology or to grill them on Bible stories, but to show them what the love of a father really looks like. One day I want my kids to read the words in the Bible that says that God's their dad, and I want them to think it's good news. I want them to think, I know how much my dad loved me. I know how much he cared for me. I know how much he was generous with me. I know how much he loved me. And I want them to think that it's such good news that God is their father. In my imperfect example, I want them to have a picture of what a good dad is like. I want to make it as easy as possible for them to relate to God as their good father. Because when we see God as our Father, it changes everything. There's a famous poem by Elizabeth Cheney, and part of it goes like this. 
said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. For us as Christians, for those of us who have put our hope in the gospel, who have been adopted by God as a father, God, we are not just birds whom God knows about, but we're kids who he loves. Verse 26, how much more valuable are you than they? See, believing that God is our loving father, it frees us from worry. It is the cure. Seeing him that way, relating to him that way, being with him in that way, it's the very root of the cure of worry and anxiety. So how do we stop worrying then? How do we fight anxiety? How do we root it out of our life? Well, the answer is both simple and obvious, yet incredibly difficult. You have to believe that God is the good father. He says he is. The question is how? How do you change what you believe? How do you fix unbelief in your heart? And the answer is twofold, that it requires faith and repentance. Both things that God does within us and we cannot do on our own. Let me explain. In order to put our faith in the truth and uproot unbelief, we've got to first acknowledge that we've been believing a lie. Our worry and anxiety is rooted in the lies that we're believing about God, about who he is and about what he's done and about what his character is and what he's like and how we relate to him. And all of that boils over into the way that we act and the emotions that we experience and the worry and anxiety that so often just rules our lives. See, and it's by God's grace, by his spirit that he convicts us of sin, shows us the lies that we're believing which have led us to that point. God doesn't shame us. We just we do that to ourselves. And here is at the root of what is repentance. See, repentance is at its heart an acknowledgement that we've been believing lies. And at the same time, it's a rejection of them. See, repentance is about confessing our sin to God. Our fear and our worry and our anxiety, they're not just bad things for us. They're not just like problems that we wrestle with. That it's sin. It's opposition towards God because it is a symptom of our unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Take care, brethren, lest, the, lest there be an evil heart of unbelief in you. He doesn't say, lest there be an unhealthy kind of sick, okay, but it could work heart. He says, take care, lest there be an evil heart of unbelief in you. Anxiety is one of the evil conditions of our heart that comes from unbelief. We've got to see it that way. If anxiety is just one of the many problems that we need to work on in our lives, then we will never see it as an offense to God. And we will never address it as though it is disconnecting us from him. But repentance alone is not enough. We've got to replace the lies that we're believing with the truth. Otherwise, more lies will just take their place, just like more weeds take the place of the ones that I try to pull out because I don't fertilize. This is the essence of faith, right? If repentance is acknowledging and rejecting the lies that we've been believing, then faith is about turning and facing the truth, laying hold of it, putting our hope in it, grasping it. And just like repentance, it's something that we cannot do without God. 
You cannot just try hard enough to believe. You cannot just hope enough. You cannot just beat yourself up about the lies that you're believing so that you'd really hope and believe in the truth. You cannot do it on your own. God must graciously show you the truth and cause your heart to believe it. Specifically, in light of the verses that we're reading this morning, we need God to show us that he's the good father he says he is. We need him to not just show us that truth, but we need him to cause it to take root in our heart. In the Old Testament, God promises that one day he would remove our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. God is the one who does the heart change within us. He doesn't force it on us, but he will, but we can never do it without him. God does this through his spirit, who not only shows us the lies that we're believing as he convicts us about sin and unrighteousness, but he shows us the truth and he shines light on Jesus so that we might see what's good and true and right and that we would put our hope in what's true. See, so often I think what happens is people think that repentance is just stopping doing the bad things that you're doing and starting doing the good things, and that's just religion. Because repentance has to be a rejection of the lies that we've been believing. And faith is about changing the direction, setting our hearts on what's true. Whatever we believe, whatever we think is true, that's where we head. And we've been believing lies that head us down the root of sin. And so we've got to change what we're looking at. We've got to set our heart and our hope in what's true, in the gospel and in who Jesus says that he is and who he proves that God is and what he's like. And it's a new vision, it's a new, it's a new place in which we set our hearts that brings about changed actions. You cannot just worry less by realizing you shouldn't worry and trying hard not to worry. Like, does that sound, I realize that we do that all the time, but just, I want to say it out loud, that's crazy. It doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. Like, when you think about it, like, that's the dumbest thing in the world, So if we want to uproot worry and anxiety in our hearts, the only way that we do that is by uprooting unbelief and replacing it with the gospel. This is the essence of faith and repentance. See, it's the combination of faith and repentance that produce change in our lives. As we repent of our unbelief and lay hold of the truth, we uproot worry and anxiety in our lives. And you might be thinking, Is this like a forever thing? Will I ever be free from anxiety and worry? And I'll just say one day, probably in heaven when your faith becomes sight. But every day in the meantime is an invitation to join Jesus in the work of uprooting unbelief in our hearts and replacing it with the truths of the gospel. That's what sanctification is. That's what it means to grow up in Christ. That's what our core value here at the church is growing in the gospel. That's the one thing that roots out anxiety and worry and unbelief in our heart. It's to grow in the truths and hope in the gospel. So this is the work that God is inviting us into every day with him, to repent of our unbelief and to turn in faith to him. Right? It's by grace that you've been saved through what? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not in trying harder, it's through faith in the gospel. It's faith in the gospel that uproots our sinful unbelief and produces life change within us. 
You see, anxiety and faith are inversely proportional. That's a technical term. Engineers would be so proud of me. As our faith increases, our anxiety decreases, they are directly linked things. And the flip is true. As our unbelief increases, our anxiety will increase as well. When we're consumed with worry and anxiety, we need to understand where we need to repent and where we need to believe the gospel. So what happens when you're consumed with worry and anxiety about the future? Well, maybe you need to repent or we need to repent of believing that God is not in control. And we need to put our faith in the gospel, which proves that God is in control. Because if when Jesus was literally dead in the grave, buried in a tomb, when he was actually dead, if in that moment God was not out of control, then there is definitely not a different moment in which he's not in control. God is always in control. If he was in control when Jesus was in the grave, then he's in control of the future in all ways. Moreover, we need to remember that God is not just sovereign and in control of the future, but that he's actually good. Titus 3, we talked about on Easter, said this, but when the goodness and the love of God appeared, he saved us. God's not just sovereign, he's not just in control of all things, he's immeasurably good. When we're consumed with worry and anxiety about money or finances... We need to repent of the lies that we're believing that God doesn't or won't or can't provide for our needs. And we need to put our faith in the gospel which proves that God provides. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give you God's already given you the best and most generous gift. He has already met your absolute deepest need. Why would he hold anything else back from you? And this is an important clarifier, I think, especially with regards to money. It is not enough to remind ourselves that God is wealthy. It is not enough to remind ourselves that God has infinite resources, that he's got the cattle on a thousand hills. That is good information. But what's good news is that God is not just immensely rich. He is immensely generous. The gospel proves his goodness and his generosity as he would give his son on our behalf. We've got to get to the gospel. It's the one thing that roots out unbelief. Just reminding yourself that God has resources is not enough. We've got to believe the truths about the gospel as it proves those things about God. Verse 28 talks about provision this way. He says, And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? The grass doesn't need flowers. It doesn't need them. They look wonderful. They are beautiful. The grass doesn't need them. But God is a generous and good God who doesn't just give just what we need. He gives generously and abundantly. 
And God doesn't just provide for our physical needs and what we need to be clothed with physically. He provides for our spiritual clothing as well because we don't, we don't just provide, God doesn't just provide cotton for us to wear the fabric of our lives. God provides Christ's righteousness as our clothes, which we now wear. His right standing is the clothes that we bear. It's what we put on that makes us right with him and it makes us clean and pure. How much more then will God clothe you? When we're consumed with worry and anxiety about our kids, for me, this is most often about my kids' health, especially when they are sick. We need to repent of the lies that we're believing that God can't help or that he just doesn't care. We need to put our faith in the gospel, which proves that God has both the power to heal and the desire to do it. If God raised Jesus from the dead, man, he can fix my kid's fever. Romans 5.10 says this, when you were enemies of Christ, he died for you. How much more that we're children would God be concerned with us? See, our hope is not in the results that God will always do what we ask because God does what is best for us and what is best for him. Well, my heart is that we would have an attitude like um, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. In Daniel 3, they are being, um, they're being threatened to be thrown into a fiery furnace for not bowing down and worshiping the idols of the king that they were living under. And they respond to King Nebuchadnezzar this way. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he goes on and says this, but if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you've put before us. That's the heart that we have to have if we oppose worry and anxiety. We're believing a lie that something other than Jesus is worth our worship. And we've got to uproot that lie, replace it with the truth. We've got to believe that God is not just powerful enough to heal, that he's able to, that he longs to. But we've got to trust in him in such a way that it's not about the results. We don't always understand how God's work. But we need to remember that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. He's got our joy and our good in mind, although we might be in pain at the moment. He has our joy in the end. When we're consumed with worry and anxiety about what others think of us or about the approval that we have with others, we need to repent of the lies that we're believing that our value and our identity and our worth come from what anyone else thinks about us. And we need to put our faith in the gospel, which proves that our identity is as adopted children of the Father. And that our value and our worth don't come from our performance, but they come from Jesus' performance on our behalf. That our value and our worth were set when Jesus decided it was worth it, that he would die so that we might have life. That's the value you've been assigned, that we've all been assigned. Immeasurably valuable, immeasurably priceless. We were enemies of God that have been made into children of a good and loving Father. Do you see how the gospel is the cure for anxiety and worry? 
Do you see how nothing else will actually fix that in our hearts? There's just one thing that uproots worry and anxiety. It's belief in the gospel. The gospel is the hope that cures our weary hearts. We've got to become believers of the gospel in every area of our lives. This is the essence of sanctification. Vanderstelt writes that sanctification is just a big word for becoming more and more like Jesus through faith in Jesus. That's what it means to grow in the gospel, to become more and more like Jesus through faith in him. And so becoming like Jesus requires believing in him more and more and more in every part of our lives. And so sanctification, growing up in Christ, is about moving from unbelief in the gospel to belief in the gospel in every area of our lives. So we've seen why we worry, and we've seen how Jesus says how we stop and how we uproot worry. But I want to just close this morning and examine this last question. Why is it so important that we do something about it? I think it's easy to believe that our worry and our anxiety just affects us. That it's just our problem, and if we don't really deal with it, then we're only the ones that suffer. Three times in the passage, Jesus commands, do not worry. The language used is not inferring good advice. It's, not a, it's like, a, hey, it'd be great for you if you did this. It's a command that Jesus is giving. It's not a good suggestion. It's a command that we need to follow. And I think the passage shows two reasons why we need to get rid of worry and anxiety and why we can't just let it go in our lives. Number one, when we're ruled by worry and anxiety, it keeps us from pursuing God's kingdom. When we are stuck worrying about our own kingdom, worrying about building it and maintaining it and keeping it up, there's no way we can be committed to pursuing God's kingdom. Verse 32 says, instead of all these things, instead of worry, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The word seek there is this active imperative. It, it suggests an unceasing quest, an unceasing pursuit of God's kingdom. There is no way we can be consumed with seeking his kingdom if our hearts are ruled and characterized by worry and anxiety about our own kingdom. I want to note here, it is really easy to preach this passage and say the cure for anxiety is just to start pursuing God's kingdom, and that's a lie. That is a lie that will crush your heart. It will crush your spirit because you cannot do it. Seeking his kingdom, pursue first the kingdom of God, that is the fruit that comes from a heart full of belief. That can never come from a heart that is rippled and rift with worry and anxiety. There's no way you can do it. The cure is not to just start pursuing God's kingdom and stop pursuing your own. That's the fruit of a heart that's changed. Secondly, I think the passage says the, the second reason why we must address worry and anxiety is that our lives preach a gospel and people that don't know Jesus yet need to both hear and they need to see the power of the gospel as good news. Verse 31 and 32 says, Unbelievers, the pagans, they worry about the basics of life such as food and drink and clothing. And Jesus says, don't worry about those things. 
You have a heavenly father who knows exactly what you need. See, our lives are to be distinct and different from the world that around us so that we might actually have a hope to offer in the midst of a culture and a world that is soaked in all of the mowing over of the weeds of anxiety but never actually finding a cure. We have the cure. The cure is belief and hope in the gospel. And if what we proclaim is that the gospel is good news, but our lives are still ruled by fear and anxiety, we don't actually proclaim a gospel that's good news. See, our faith in difficult and trying times is is a proclamation of the gospel. This is my deepest prayer for my uncle who's battling cancer right now. Much of my dad's side of the family doesn't know Jesus. And they've lost a number of family in recent years from cancer and other things. And it has been deeply sad. And like this, the tone and the posture, I guess it's just been, it's been really, really hard because there is no hope. And my deep desire for my uncle is that he might walk with Jesus in the midst of something really hard so that he might show my family what it means to have hope that comes from the gospel that he wouldn't be ruled by anxiety and fear of the future, but he'd be filled with confidence and hope that leads to peace in the midst of immeasurable hardship. What are your worries and anxiety revealing about the God you believe in? People see through your fake joy. They see through your fake smiles. It's so obvious. They see through mine as well. Question is, are we proclaiming a gospel that is good news with our life or just our words? We must do it with both. Jesus' command for us not to worry is not just for our good and our joy, but it's for the good and the joy of all people, especially those that don't know him yet. Our worry has eternal consequences. We must treat it that way. It's not something that just affects us. It's something that affects the advancing of God's kingdom. My heart this morning is that we would trust and believe that God's our loving Father. That it would free us from worry and anxiety so we might be able to pursue his kingdom with reckless abandon. If we're going to represent God as his ambassadors proclaiming his gospel to the world, then we've got to root out worry and anxiety from our hearts and our lives. We've got to replace unbelief in God with belief in the gospel in every area, not by our own strength or by our own power, but by God's power within us, doing in us. That happens as we exercise faith and repentance. If you want to learn more about what it looks like to identify the lies that you are believing in your heart and learn more about repentance and faith and what it means to proclaim the truths of the gospel into our unbelief, I I just cannot more highly recommend um, Jeff Vanderstelt's book, Gospel Fluency, to you. It has been some of the most helpful, um, practical tools I have ever found for learning to think about the centrality of the gospel in uprooting unbelief in our lives. It is super cheap and incredibly readable. It's just like the best resource I could offer you if you, if you want to learn more or grow into that. But I would just add, you can never do it by yourselves. 
It's not something you can just think about more and get better at. We've got to do it inside community. And so maybe that's with your spouse or with your friends or maybe it's in your small group. Learning to live life in such a way that we are able to reveal to one another the lives that we're believing and point out the truths of the gospel so we might believe them. At the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this section in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, uh, the parallel version, Jesus closes with these words. I thought they were so helpful. In verse 32 in Luke, he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your good father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your good father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we just confess that we don't believe that. There are so often times in our lives where we do not believe that you're good and we do not believe that you're a good father. God, and it, it just wrecks our lives. And so we need you, God, to replace the unbelief in our heart, the rebellion in our heart. We need you to replace it with the truths about the gospel and about who you are. God, we need the gospel to be good news, not just good advice. God, you are the only one that can bring about faith and repentance in our hearts. We just like come humbly before you, King Jesus, which you'd graciously do that within us. God, we want to live lives that are fruitful for your kingdom. We want others to come to know and love and follow and cherish and see you as their good and loving father. And we recognize, God, that when our lives are characterized by anxiety and worry, God, there's no way that we get to proclaim a gospel that's good news. So, God, we come. We need your help. We need the truths of the gospel. We need you to make those true in our hearts. And so, God, we just, we just come asking that you would. God, for our good, for our joy, for our love for you, and for your great and abiding glory in all of the earth and in all peoples. I pray these things. Amen.